0: I'm Wade Clark Roof, Director of the Walridge Kapp Center for the Study of Ethics, Religion, and Public Life at the University of California at Santa Barbara. I'm delighted to have as my guest this evening Diana Eck, Professor of Comparative Religion and Indian Studies at Harvard University. Diana Eck has written many, many books, numerous articles uh, on religion in India and in other parts of the world, But in the past 10 years or so, her interest focused particularly on the United States and the growing impact of religious pluralism in our culture. And in in 2001, she authored this very important book entitled A New Religious America with a very interesting subtitle, How a Christian Country Has Become the World's Most Religiously Diverse Nation. It's an intriguing topic. Professor Eck, I'd like to ask you if you would tell us a bit about how you got interested in religious pluralism in the United States and something about your project, the Project on Pluralism at Harvard University. Thank you,
1: Clark. It's great to be here. And uh, I think my interest in religious pluralism really began with my interest in India. India is, after all, an old multi-religious nation and my research there brought me into contact with Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims and Christians and Jews and uh, Buddhists. Uh, one really gains a sense of the, of the religious diversity of the world by uh, studying and working in India. And along about 1990, I began to notice in my own teaching about India, that the students in the class were beginning to change. The demographics of the classroom at Harvard University was changing. And a lot of that was because there were students who were not foreign students from India, but were American-born students of Indian origin who were in my classes on the world's religions or on the religious traditions of India. And they were Muslims who'd grown up in Chicago and Sikhs who'd grown up in Pittsburgh and Hindus who'd grown up in Delaware. And I realized I didn't know very much about these religious traditions in their American context. In fact, I had been in India in 1965 as a student when the new Immigration and Nationalities Act was passed. And in the years uh, since then I had sort of taken note of the fact of what this would mean for India the fact that it meant a a kind of brain drain as we called it as indian doctors and engineers came to the united states and yet i have to confess i never really thought of what it would mean for the united states Mm -hmm. until these students really the children of the new immigration showed up in my classroom so the genesis of studying religious diversity in america really came from the changing uh, demography of my university and I figured I needed to find out more about Hindu communities and Muslims and Sikhs in the United States and so I began this research project
0: that's fascinating it's interesting that you a professor uh, starting in your career interested in India would would discover that the pluralism that you discovered there was becoming increasingly something in your own country and many, many of us had not seen that. And suddenly, we became a, more aware that ours is a very, very religiously pluralistic place. It's always been pluralistic, of course, but yeah. but somewhat more narrowly conceived. Now we've got all of these great world religious traditions represented here in the United States. So it's a
1: quite, quite different scene, isn't it? It is a different scene. And even figuring out who's here at the beginning was a real challenge. And the first thing I did uh, as a sort of predecessor to the Pluralism Project was to uh, teach a seminar. You don't know anything about it as a professor, that's what you often do is, yes. I think I'll teach a seminar about that. So I uh, announced a seminar on world religions in Boston and what we did was really to remap the religious landscape of Boston. We visited the new Hindu temple that was being built in the suburbs, a temple dedicated to the goddess Lakshmi and we visited old and new Islamic centers and found there were six or seven of them in the suburbs of Boston to say nothing of all the Islamic uh, centers and communities at the university and we found Vietnamese temples, Buddhist temples in uh, Roslindale and Dorchester and East Boston and there were Cambodian Buddhist temples in the northern suburbs and Chinese Buddhist temples down in Quincy and uh, a Jain temple in an old Former Swedish Lutheran Church in Norwood. And this really was just a fascinating thing to me in the town I had by then lived in for uh, 15 years, to visit religious communities, to bring my students to those communities as well, to begin to build bridges of relationship with those people, and uh, to learn a lot more about the challenges of Boston. And, and then from I there? from there, yeah, I, I, I realized that what was happening in Boston was probably happening elsewhere, so I applied for a grant uh, at first, it was from the Lilly Endowment to uh, have student researchers do hometown research over the summer over a period of a couple of years and go to Oklahoma City and Chicago and Minneapolis and san francisco Bay area and Uh, do some research on what was happening in those areas of the country. So really the pluralism project at the beginning was asking three kinds of research questions. The first was really basic demographics to try to get a sense through the lens of American cities and towns of how many Islamic centers and mosques and Sikh gurdwaras and Hindu temples were there. Um, who's here was really the first question because we don't do a religious census in this country and we literally had no idea uh, who we are and the second question was really something that came more out of my work as an historian of religion which is uh, how are these traditions changing in the American context what does it mean to build a Hindu temple in the suburbs of Boston and sort of bring the ritual life of a South Indian community into this context uh, what does it mean to develop a Thai Buddhist community in uh, Phoenix, Arizona? Uh, you know, what are, the, what are the ways in which all religious life changes in the process of immigration? And, you know, as someone who studies the dynamism of religious traditions, here it is, uh, happening in front of our eyes, so that was our second question. What's, how are these traditions uh, taking root in American soil? How are they changing? And then our third question was really, how's America changing? And that's one that we keep uh, working at, because that is a very complicated question. How do we, the people of the United States of America, in all the places where we come together, how are we coping with this new religious diversity? Those are all
0: very, very important questions. And I want to ask you about, particularly the last two, number two and number three now when you speak of cambridge massachusetts or california and particularly southern california it's really not too surprising that one encounters religious pluralism but if you go to ames iowa or nebraska or many parts of ohio and certainly in the deep south uh, our assumptions are that uh... there's not very much pluralism there but it's been it's been changing there too hasn't it?
1: it really has and of course one of the things that you do when you're uh, investigating something is you have your an antenna out and your attention focused on something that many people simply aren't paying attention to so you know they would drive right by the uh, mosque in Oklahoma City and not notice it was there because it's in a former gymnasium mm-hmm. or uh, you know they would not really be aware of the Hindu and Buddhist communities in North Carolina um, because they're in rural parts of the state it might be a monastery in Bolivia North Carolina or something like that people um, aren't so uh, attuned to this and so in one sense the presence of these communities in places that would be surprising is invisible to us in part because the communities themselves don't stand out and announce themselves they are uh, you know, a, a mosque that is in a former U-Haul dealership in Pawtucket, Rhode Island or something of the sort. Um, and when it's your subject of investigation to, to visit them, then you, you discover that the familiar really houses a, a, a new community of, uh, of new strangers who are amongst us as uh, part of our fabric here in the United States. So it's not just a bi-coastal thing. And we have had Pluralism Project researchers over the years affiliated with a university in Kentucky and looking at the religious diversity on the strip between Louisville and Nashville. We've had researchers in North Carolina, in northern Florida, um, in Mississippi and Arkansas, in Ohio, Ohio, as it turns out, is just a, a wealthy state when it comes to recognizing the new religious diversity. And in fact, uh, in the uh, centennial, centenary anniversaries that they had in Ohio a couple of years ago, they put uh, markers on some of the, the, the first mosque, the Hindu temples, the Gurdwaras of Ohio, as part of their historical society recognition of what had been going on there so it is surprising um, and that's been part of the real excitement of a project like this well that sounds fascinating I want to pick up on
0: one thing you said that often uh, these new religious groups uh, meet uh, in places that you wouldn't recognize as a as a, as a religious center and therefore there's a kind of question there about public visibility isn't yes. there but as many of these populations have moved to the suburbs, and what we typically say here in the United States, moved into the middle class, mm-hmm. they become much more publicly visible, mm-hmm. participating in the co- communities in which they live, taking a role in the public schools, uh, becoming uh, uh, citizens and expressing themselves in, in terms of their civic activities. So is it, is it the case, uh, I assume you would agree that 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 this public visibility has brought increased attention to the consciousness of
1: other Americans about their presence. It's very, very true. It's, it's visibility in terms of participation as you mentioned. Um, they become part of the PTA, they become part of the uh, the people who show up at city council when they are uh, putting a petition for a zoning variance or something, perhaps for one of their gurdwaras or temples. Uh, They encounter uh, neighbors in a kind of public way like that. The visibility also entails a certain amount of vulnerability. As these religious institutions become more recognizable, they also become at times uh, the targets of people who are not so comfortable with the fact that they're present among us. So, and that has always been the case, whether it's churches or synagogues, and now mosques or gurdwaras or Hindu temples, uh, as they become visible public statements of who they are, they become uh, vulnerable targets if people are uncomfortable with who they are. So going back into the 80s, one of the new Hindu temples in Pittsburgh, for example, was vandalized by uh, people who broke in and... Uh, smashed the deities on the altar and and uh, tore up the holy book of the Sikhs because the Sikhs had their own altar in that temple at the time and wrote the word leave across the altar. Uh, and similarly after 9-11, uh, many of the most strident attacks against Muslim communities were precisely at the places where they were most visible. Uh, the mosque in Cleveland, the mosque in outside Toledo or in Chicago or in Denver uh, were the places where that very visibility created a kind of vulnerability. Yes. That also, by the way, is true with the, uh, with the way in which the new Americans dress. And the places where discrimination is most likely to happen are the people who are the most visibly different. And that includes uh, women wearing the hijab or the headscarf, and uh, turbaned Sikh men. They are the ones who kind of attract the attention as uh, people who are amongst us and, and wearing visible markers of their difference. I want to switch to that
0: third question. And as you pointed out, it's a very complex issue of how the presence of what you're calling the new Americans, how their presence is changing the United States, how it's changing the American culture. It seems to me that right now we're in a situation in this country where, you know, where there's this big issue about what kind of country is this? Yeah. It's in our politics. We've just been through a presidential election. Are we a Christian country? Are we a pluralist country? And what does pluralist country mean in this context? Mm-hmm. How plural can we be if we're pluralist? Are yeah. we a secular country? Yeah. Uh, What is the proper role of religion in the political or public sphere? So how, how do you locate your observations about religious pluralism in this current context of political conversation about what is the proper role of religion in our national, public, and particularly in our political
1: life today? It's a really really important question and it's a complicated question as you say. I mean there's one way in which constitutionally we are a nation that is pledged to the non-establishment of religion and the free exercise of religion. Both of those are the principles, a kind of dual set of rudders that are there in the First uh, Amendment uh, to the Constitution in the Bill of Rights. and So uh, that has in some ways uh, really guided us through a period of expanding religious diversity. Um, We're not supposed to have an established religion, even though throughout uh, American history, really beginning in the 19th century and continuing right up to the middle of the 20th century, there were actual movements to... Write Christianity into the preamble to the Constitution. Happily, most of those have failed, and happily, the you know the judiciary does a pretty good job of trying to guide this issue. We're a Christian majority country; eighty uh, percent of us are Christians, or so. And then we have all of these religious minorities, uh, and then we have the people who have the constitutional right not to have any religious tradition themselves, nor to. Uh, have religion forced on them in some sort of uh, public fashion as citizens. So uh, these are difficult issues. My main concern is that we really recognize uh, the multi-religious nature of America, that when we speak of religion in the public sphere, we don't speak as if um, we were just a Judeo-Christian nation. Speak in that normative language that leaves everyone else uh, out of our line of vision uh, that sort of drops them uh, from the articulated publicly noticed forms of religious life and for many Americans when they speak of religion in America that's all they think of about they think of um, they think of Christian America or of judeo-christian america at most and they're not thinking in their mind's eye from sea to shining sea they're not thinking of that mosque in toledo or the hindu temple in nashville or the sikh gurdwara in el sobrante they they really are you know seeing everything from the little white new england church to the crystal cathedral really that's what religion means and i think my concern is to make quite clear that religion in america is multiple and that religious diversity is part of the precious inheritance of religious freedom. That's why we have religious diversity. So that's the sort of ethos that I think uh, pluralism seeks to engender. But then the other important piece is what about the privileging of religion over non-religion? Uh, the people who, who either came here as immigrants because they had had quite enough of religious uh, oppression in their country of origin or who live here as Americans quite uh, happy with the fact that religion is not forced upon us as citizens people are free to be religious in the many many ways that they are but as a citizen you don't have to profess your religion and that's another complicated uh, Scenario. It's how to
0: balance one's religious life and one's life as a citizen. Exactly. And, and we are both, or many Americans are both, uh, or even the, the secular American is a citizen, so the issue of, of religion or secularity has to be somehow uh, Juxtaposed with their identity as a citizen, mm-hmm. and therein lies the rub, does it not? It that, does indeed. That uh, that part of the part of the problem is that is that uh, you know if uh, one one argument on this issue is well, look, we've been we've been a very religious country mm-hmm. throughout our history, although sometimes that early history of America is exaggerated and it's seen now as or thought to be more religious than perhaps it actually was. But nonetheless, grant that argument, we've been a religious country. Why should it not become, or why should it not remain a religious country? And then others take the line, well, you know, it's, it's also been a Christian, predominantly a Christian country mm-hmm. throughout its history. And then in the 1950s, people started talking about Judeo-Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why should it not remain that? Yeah. So, so it becomes an issue mm-hmm. of how do we weigh our, our heritage which is looking to the past yes. over against some
1: unfolding vision of America yeah.
0: that suggests it could be changing.
1: Yeah, this is so so important <sighs> because you and I both grew up in an era when, at least I went to elementary school in uh, Bozeman, Montana, and nobody ever complained about having a Christmas pageant in the school. We always had Christmas pageants. Um, it was just n- w- you know that word normative. It's what we thought of as normal. Now the reason that those uh, that sort of heritage has now come into question, and we have the December dilemma and this last year a lot of flap about whether uh, you could say Christmas rather than happy holidays, et cetera, is partly because of this new diversity and the pluralism that it represents. As we become more diverse, we are recognizing and having to face the sort of normative elements of Christianity that have gotten intertwined with our citizenship in ways that now we see may have been inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Maybe not inappropriate for then, but inappropriate for now. And that really is where it starts to hurt people. Um, I think our new diversity has made us recognize some of the ways in which um, in which the separation of church and state so to speak is really a very good thing for us Um, because uh, church means all sorts of things here now it doesn't mean just church it means synagogue and mosque and gurdwara and temple and uh... you know if we were to have prayers in the public schools we would have to uh, you and I write a prayer book from Apache to Zoroastrian, and we probably make a lot of money at it, but you know, this isn't the way we want to proceed, uh, I think. I think we, we need to be able to identify, as you say, what is our role as citizens and what is appropriate in our civic life and what is appropriate in our religious life. And Tocqueville said it well when he visited America in the early 19th century, and he said, you know, it's a funny thing. Here, religion and freedom seem to march in the same direction. And that wasn't the experience in France. Freedom meant turning away from religion. And in part, it is because religion was uncoupled from the support of government. And it was a a bold experiment. Uh, People hadn't really thought of it before, but somehow religion became stronger when it was separated from the support of government and uh, you know that's why we have fifteen different kinds of baptists if you don't like your baptist church you can start another one and that's uh, that is the recipe for religious uh, multiplicity that's why muslims who come to the united states are really happy to see this as what they would sometimes refer to as dar al-islam a land of islam because islam can flourish here without um... Without restrictions on the the um, on the very freedom that other people cherished for themselves, well, at least until recently. Now, of course, you know we have the FBI looking at uh, uh, looking at Islamic centers with a bit of a, uh, a, a suspicious eye. But but basically, religion has flourished here because it has been free.
0: Yes, you mentioned Tolkovol, and he was so masterful in. in His observations about American life, and so many of them continue to resonate with us, and particularly the point about religion and freedom march together here, because that has given life to religion as a voluntary phenomenon, independent of the state. And and yet, there's a shadow side to this, it seems to me, which is that in times of some insecurity, uh some religious groups particularly those who identify with the historical heritage of the United States as Protestant may now want the state to defend that religion because presumably it has a kind of of uh, authenticity in the american experience that others may not pr- presume so so there's that interesting shadow side to the argument is there mm-hmm. not you, you you follow what i 'm saying that 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 some um, particular conservative Christians today who feel threatened by the presence of so many religions would actually want the state in one way or another to to make sure through faith based initiatives or through public rhetoric that is rooted in that tradition. To, to, to give it a nod of approval mm-hmm. rather than recognizing or approving other religions. Do you, do you see any of that going you, on?
1: We certainly see it going on. I think a, a lot of the faith-based initiatives uh, uh, work is really aimed at uh, conservative Christian faith-based groups. It's an odd thing in some ways that people who are often in the majority when they see the flowering of many others in society, begin to develop a minority consciousness and a feeling of threat. Why this should be the case, I don't know. Because every every religious community can, has the option, really, of forming a separate uh, voluntary organization, nonprofit corporation, a 501c3, as we call it in the tax status, that has the aim of uh, delivering the kinds of services they have. Uh, whether it 's in hospital or hospice or drug rehabilitation or prison work, they can form a separate body that is not about the preaching of their religious uh, life but um, i think I do think the faith based initiative issue is a very serious one because what we 're really gambling with is the very heritage that Tocqueville recognized as our strength and that our constitution recognizes as its strength i mean it 's not as if the people uh, who were uh, the framers of the Constitution didn't think about maybe we should just establish Christianity in general rather than some particular sect of Christianity as a kind of good national foundation for our ethos. They thought about it, and they rejected it. And, um, and so should we. Uh, I, I think that the recipe for religious freedom and religious flourishing is something that we've done well with, and we probably shouldn't tamper with. Uh, And that doesn't mean that faith based uh, initiatives aren't really very positive things, because they are. But we need to uh, rely on the volunteerism of our uh, communities of faith to do that work rather than subsidize that uh, with government support. There you're really mixing uh, the government coffers with those of the church, so to speak, and it is mostly churches. Uh, in ways that I think uh, threaten the very constitutional heritage of our country.
0: The, the issue I think we face today is, is that many Americans seem caught between um, certainly adhering to a view that religion is, is voluntaristic over against what are the rights of the majority yeah. to, to prevail in the public mm-hmm. sphere? To have their religious beliefs dictate the moral, ethical standards of of the society. So uh, that conflict between yes, you're entitled to have whatever religion you want, but there is a majority, yeah, and the majority must set the tone. And you're gonna have to li- you can practice your minority faith, but you'll have to live with uh, w- with the majority or else you should leave the country. There's some of that sentiment There expressed. certainly is.
1: I mean, my colleague Sam Huntington has expressed that pretty strongly at Harvard University in that book called Who Are We? Uh, yes. And his we is really the old uh, Anglo-Protestant uh, we on which our country and heritage is based. And he raises a kind of histrionic cry about... Um, all of the the uh, so called cults of diversity that have uh, invaded the United States I, it is sort of strange language in a way because um, diversity is 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 hardly an ideology diversity is our reality and it 's a good reality in my view it 's one that uh, that really provides the nourishment for the creativity of our society but I do think it's uh, the case that and we certainly saw some of it in the rhetoric of this past 2004 election, that, um, that the majority is, wants to flex its muscle and become emboldened to say, you know, it's really we who are the people who set the tone and ethos of the United States. And you know, we do have a democratic process through which our officials from the local to the national level are elected by the majority. We also have a judicial system and their uh, obligation is to defend the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in the Constitution is precisely for the minorities, for the people who don't win elections, for the Sikhs and the Jains and the Zoroastrians whom uh, everyone else might uh, just as uh, well like to uh, neglect and forget about because they're so small. Um, It's really precisely the microscopic minorities that we have a Bill of Rights for and that's what the uh, judiciary is about preserving that's what our Constitution is for and when the president gets up there and says he's gonna preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States it's that that is most important to preserve protect and defend the rights of the people who disagree with him who uh, have a different religious faith uh, for whom Jesus Christ is not their personal Lord and Savior. Those are the people uh, for whom an elected official like the President is pledged to speak. And I think, uh, you know, that is, that's a very important civic responsibility. And he needs to exercise civic language in a way that's quite distinct from whatever religious language he might want to speak.
0: Now that's an interesting uh, lead into a question I wanted to ask you about our so-called civil religion, yeah. which is uh, different, of course, from what may be practiced in any particular religious group. But the, the religion of the nation, I mm-hmm. mean, our, our presidents historically have called upon religious values and religious symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've heard a lot of that le- of late as well. Um, as the country becomes more pluralistic religiously, Will our civil religion become more transformed to include the newcomers so that there will be references to um, uh, the, the so-called new American traditions that you speak of? And, and actually we saw a bit of this in the recent inaugural mm-hmm. by President George uh, W. Bush where uh, some reference was made to, uh, I believe, uh, uh, one of the texts other than the Bible I mm-hmm. uh, forget now which one it was. Well,
1: he re- referred to the the character and the values that are instilled by uh, Sinai, meaning the Ten Commandments, code for the Ten Commandments, Sinai, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Quran, the and Quran. other religious faiths. He yes. said, "Yeah."
0: Now, that would seem to be a positive sign toward inclusion mm-hmm. in our civil religious rhetoric. Mm-hmm. America, under. A deity that 's broader than Jewish, broader than christian, yeah. broader than any mm-hmm. any single faith, so we seem to be moving somewhat in that direction on the other hand, if you look closely at some of the ceremonies, even including the national cathedral uh, 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 c- ceremony right after nine eleven uh, where we did have a uh, multiple religious traditions represented mm-hmm. but uh, that event concluded with the singing of onward Christian soldiers, uh, as yes, I recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it, it, we get that kind of a crazy mix in our in our public culture today of of nodding a bit to the new religious pluralism, mm-hmm. and yet let's hold on to some of the old religious language that it is distinctly because they, they don't
1: have uh, you and I there. Uh, as the sort of liturgical specialists of the new religious America they wanted to hire us to say how should we do our civil religion but you know we are seeing changes in the way in which uh, religion is recognized in the public sphere let's say uh, the governor of Arizona a few years ago uh, issued a proclamation on the occasion of the Buddha's birthday Uh, the governor of the state of Kansas issues a proclamation commending Muslims in Kansas on the observation of Ramadan and the spirit of the Ramadan fast or the state legislature in Michigan uh, acknowledging and congratulating the Sikh community on the 400th anniversary of the Guru Granth Sahib of the, of the uh, scripture of the Sikh community or the White House uh, celebrations I would say or at least Uh, observances of the Eid al-Fitr at the end of Ramadan, which happened just for the first time under the Clintons in the 1990s, or this year the White House uh, invitation to the Hindu community for the observance of Diwali, the Hindu fall festival. So these are various um, ways in which you can see the kind of uh, public nod, the recognition that we as a people are... A multi-religious nation. That's happening more and more. Public officials will speak of our churches, our synagogues, our mosques. They haven't quite got to the temples and gurdwaras yet. Um, and there, all of these occasions when you know that sort of thing happens. Uh, there are some people who are not very happy when that sort of thing happens as well. But that does provide a a kind of civic. Counterpart to the religious rhetoric, but it's a it's a tricky thing. I mean, legislative prayers is another interesting issue. The fact that American uh, the the Congress opens every day the House and the Senate with a word of prayer, an invocation. Um, we have a chaplain, and uh, you know that person arranges these various prayers. The first time a Muslim ever offered that prayer was in 1991, and. Uh, we've gradually had Imams open Congress with an invocation. Uh, a Hindu priest from the Shiva Vishnu Temple in Maryland opened a, a, a joint session of Congress with an invocation. So gradually that sort of thing has happened. Um, but there are very interesting questions to the the um, limits of that pluralism. Uh, I've been following a case in Chesterfield County in Richmond in Virginia, where there was a list, for example, of the uh, clergy who could sign up to offer the invocation at the county meetings, and uh, usually it was the ministers and the rabbi and eventually an imam, and then a woman wrote up and said, I, you know, I'd also like to offer an invocation, and she was a Wiccan, um, a part of a, a, a small community of what you might call neo-pagan or pagan practice and of course they went nuts they said you know they threw it out of court right at the beginning you can't possibly have a wiccan opening our county commission meeting and it went to court and their argument was that our civil religion is judeo-christian it and is under one god and you wiccans don't believe in one god you have a lot of different spirits and it's under god who is above and you Wiccans, uh, you know, have a sense of God within, mm-hmm. and so you don't really fit the civil religion. Mm-hmm. And they started doing exactly what our county commissions and our city councils should not do, which is to theologize about anybody's religion, but especially about someone else's. And, you know, this is, these are the sort of cases that we look at them and say, uh, this raises the very question of the limits of pluralism, Mm-hmm. of the very meaning of pluralism, and it tests the understanding of um, what what we mean. Yes. A, when we say we, we, and what we mean by our civil religion. Yes. Before I go any further asking you any questions, I
0: want to correct myself. It was not Onward Christian Soldiers that was sung at that ceremony after 9-11. I, I'm pretty sure it was the Battle Hymn of the Republic
1: oh I see
0: <laughs> well but it has a bit of the crusading spirit it does. within it. but it's a, 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 a lovely lovely piece, nonetheless
1: mm-hmm uh, but uh, but I let s- me say a word about onward Christian soldiers But I was thinking about that <laughs> in the context of the Pledge of Allegiance case which is another one of those that raises what do we mean by having under God mm-hmm. in our Pledge of Allegiance and I remember as I'm sure you do when those words were added into the pledge I grew up with oh, the pledge, you know, one nation, indivisible. It was a very nice sort of flow. And then we had to stop and put those commas and add under God, and I pretty much knew what under God meant. But, um, but the very issue of that being signed into law by President Eisenhower in the early 1950s, and then they did play Onward Christian Soldiers. A bugle was playing that in the background as he was signing, signing the, um, the legislation for it uh... and that's made our lives complicated in this day and age because you know nobody has. no politician on earth wants to be caught saying we don't want to take under god out of the <laughs> out of the uh, pledge of allegiance it would be political suicide and yet when you look at it from a strictly constitutional standpoint you look at it through the eyes of many of our new immigrants and our old immigrants buddhists for example for whom that doesn't really ring a bell and for whom it might mean actually pledging something that's contrary to their religious belief or else feeling outsiders to the American project by keeping their mouths shut or all the atheists who feel outsiders to the American project in general these are these are perplexing questions yes
0: they are um, in one of your chapters in your in your book uh, you, you 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 talk about fear mm-hmm. you know, Power of fear, particularly as it relates to religious pluralism—the fact that your neighbor may believe differently than you, or may not believe at all in anything that uh, would look like something you might call religion—what is it that really we are afraid of? If if we can try to contextualize that in contemporary America, Uh, in, in many respects we are accustomed to pluralism. You know, I'm old enough, as I think you are, to remember when ice cream only came in the form of chocolate and vanilla and maybe strawberry. And now we've got you know, everything. Everything. <laughs> 30, 30 different options. Mm. Uh, we've got pluralism uh, in so many realms of life. We, we believe in choice. We, we, we celebrate choice. But religious pluralism can strike uh, fear. Mm-hmm. What's, what's behind that?
1: Well, there are two things. One is uh, ignorance. That most people don't really know that much when it comes right down to it about the religious traditions of people unlike themselves. Um, That can mean, you know, like myself growing up in Montana, I knew almost nothing about Judaism or Jews. I never met any. certainly we didn't study anything about Islam even though a fifth of the human race and perhaps more are Muslims the idea that you could graduate from high school and know almost nothing about the faith and motivation and community and deepest beliefs of a vast swath of humankind um, that still happens a bit today and uh, the same with the Hindu tradition we really are a nation of functional illiterates in some way, when it comes to understanding uh, what it is that uh, the various communities of faith that have become part of our country and that are also major actors in the world today, we don't understand them very well. Um, and now part of that is th- that our educational system has not really placed a high priority on learning about religion for many years we were a little afraid of it we thought well you couldn't really study about religion isn't that mixing church and state and you know we were told in the nineteen sixties with those Supreme Court decisions of course not you know in fact it's an obligation to learn about religion as part of our history as part of world history American history California history it's just a fact of life but we haven't really caught up in a sense educationally with the changes in our world and in our society so that's one thing. Um, another is that many people come out of religious traditions where part of what they are taught is that their way of being religious is the only way um, and here I speak as a, as a Christian who grew up in uh, Protestant Christian tradition not really a, an exclusivist uh, fundamentalist tradition more a social Gospel Methodist tradition but I know that it's true for many people that their way of thinking about the other is framed not so much by the covenants that we have as citizens to respect one another's traditions but it's framed by the um, sort of fragmentary pieces of the Christian message that have become a kind of um, code for how you think about everyone else uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to salvation but through me. Or in no other name may people be saved. So there's a kind of Christian exclusivism that runs through the spine of a lot of fundamentalist and uh, general Protestant uh, theology that also devalues people of other faiths and does, not only doesn't understand them, but uh, has a view of them that is... Uh, sort of uh, 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 as part of what they might refer to as those who are lost or not on their way to salvation because they're not part of our community. And I think that the, that kind of theological uh, assessment that is very, it's very crude, not very well thought out, not very well um, sort of uh, peopled with actual friends and neighbors who may be devout people of another faith, but I think that also is part of the, you know, the, the fear, the hanging back, the uh, inability to uh, really to assess what it is to be neighbor to people who are not like us, to people who are strangers. You've also written about uh,
0: the need for what you call positive pluralism. Can you tell us about that?
1: By positive pluralism, I mean, I mean real pluralism. I mean not just diversity, because diversity isn't pluralism. Diversity is just a fact. That's, you, know, you can deal with diversity in many ways. You can ignore it. You can leave all of these people in their own little isolated ghettos and communities with no interaction or traffic between them. Um, and to me, that's just diversity. But pluralism is the engagement of that diversity in the creation of a common society. And that really is what I mean by positive pluralism. It is, um, it, it's the kind of engagement that, that appreciates the fact that our Muslim and Sikh uh, neighbors are involved in political life, in, uh, in the life of uh, registering people to vote, as they were during this last election, are involved in social service organizations, are involved in political action organizations and in civil rights uh, organizations that are participants in the society, and uh, not just passively so, so positive pluralism is is all about engagement and it goes beyond the sort of passive uh, tolerance I mean tolerance is a good thing, but tolerance is simply too thin a foundation for the level of diversity that we have in our society today we need to look beyond tolerance to engagement and uh, relationship Um, I can tolerate people that I have no idea who they are they're just different I don't know nothing about them and the problem is that when that begins to fray and break down um, we still have in our minds those half-baked truths the stereotypes the sort of misinformation, the no bridge building at all um, and we can easily fall apart into fragmentation. So positive pluralism is really the bridge building, the energy that goes into creating the uh, city and regional and national institutions that bring us together.
0: I think it's the case and I certainly would like your your response that uh Aside from the bridge building that goes with something like positive pluralism, that is getting to know the other, one might actually get to know more about one's own tradition as a result of, d- of the discovery of how similar or how different we are relative to others. So mm-hmm. that, that we ourselves learn a great mm-hmm. deal. I too come from a Methodist tradition. You do. Growing <laughs> up in the South yeah. uh, wasn't so much a social gospel tradition, more of a Methodist piety tradition but I, I believe it's the case that as you encounter the other you also encounter yourself in a deeper way and, and know more
1: about who you are. Is that, is that your sense? Well said. I think it, uh, it's absolutely my sense. I say it both from personal experience because um, I've been involved in what is sometimes loosely called interfaith dialogue or interreligious dialogue for many years now and some of that is sort of organized in a way where, you know, Hindus and Muslims and Christians and Jews and Baha'is all come together to, um, to get to know each other, to talk about issues of, uh, of justice or poverty or peacemaking, perhaps in particular situations. But, um, but in other instances they are really uh, groups that come together, as is increasingly the case in our society, to do things together. Uh, one of the things that's all the rage in various places today are interfaith Habitat for Humanity projects where we're getting to know each other by building a house together. Uh, and That's a great metaphor for what we're actually doing in the world we live in. But I think the testimony of people who have been engaged in this is that you do come to a deeper understanding of who you are, of who oneself is, in the encounter with the other. It's a kind of dialogical uh, learning, that uh, that is about both speaking and listening and we need the voices we need to be able to hear the voices of the many people involved in our communities today and in our nation when we uh, think about the challenges that lie ahead because a, a democratic multi-religious nation is what we have we can either do it really well and provide a kind of uh, energy for doing that that might, in fact, um, be useful or even uh, ennobling or inspiring for for others. Um, because these issues of how you create a multi-religious society are not just America's issues. I mean, these are the old issues and old and new issues of India and Malaysia and Indonesia and now, you know, Iraq as well. Certainly. Uh, these, are not, um, these are not things that, that are just for us, uh, you know, a free, democratic, multi-religious society is a bold experiment.
0: Very bold experiment indeed. It seems to me that, uh, that the presence of Muslims in the United States, Muslims in particular, and I might say especially since 9-11, has raised uh, not only the consciousness among Americans of the the presence of Islam in this country, but has aroused a good deal of speculation about the extent to which Muslims or Islam can be assimilated into the United States. Now, uh, people on one side say there's a religion that's just too different from Jews and Christians then the others say, on the other side, oh, but this is one of the Abrahamic faiths. Mm-hmm. Uh, these three actually share a lot in common. If you can overcome uh, all the current uh, fears and stereotypes that go with, uh, with uh, Muslims in this country as perceived by non-Muslims, that actually we share a lot in common. Now, do you think that portends for the future anything like a a new sense of a core religious set of values that will include Muslims actually more at the center of our culture rather than at the periphery of the culture.
1: Well this is a great topic and nothing has interested me more I will say in the last ten years than the study of Muslims and Muslim communities in the United States. I've learned so much from American Muslims and American Muslim communities. Yes, I think uh, on the one hand, there is quite a movement in the U.S. today, something called the Abrahamic uh, Initiatives, and one will find it in cities and towns across the country where Muslims, Christians, and Jews are coming together to explore their common heritage, um, monotheistic uh, heritage that shares not only Abraham but quite a spectrum of our uh, biblical uh, tradition together and both to come to an appreciation of what's in common but to a clearer sense of the ways in which we're really rather different communities Um, I will say that I have visited dozens and dozens of mosques in America just last Friday went to Jummah prayers at the Islamic Center of San Diego and I have always felt welcomed. I came as a stranger. I sat in the balcony with the women with my headscarf on and was immediately um, embraced by a a small bevy of Syrian grandmothers who were so delighted that I was there and embraced me, made me stay for lunch, and um, I think uh, were encouraged by the fact that I was there. Uh, Maybe I would be a Muslim myself. There certainly is a very strong confidence in uh, the Islamic community in America and throughout the world that if all of us really knew about Islam we would become Muslims Um, that there is something so clearly compelling about Islam I feel it myself even as a lifelong Methodist I feel that Islam is a very deeply compelling religious tradition Um, and if you go to any mosque you'll find a dozen brochures that are there for us for you for the Hispanic people who come um, KSL Islam what is Islam uh, because it is a mission religion now that's also one of the peop- things that makes uh, people a little apprehensive that it is a a, a religious tradition of some confidence and uh, sometimes my Muslim friends are surprised to hear me say this because when I look at Islam in the United States I see uh, Islamic centers flourishing. I see an increasing number of Islamic schools where they're making the choice to have private schools as Catholics did a century ago. Um, and I also see a growing number of instruments of participation, of the voluntary organizations that Muslims have created to be part of the American scene. From the Muslim Public Affairs Council in Los Angeles to the Council on American Islamic Relations which is the kind of um, Muslim anti-defamation league if you will um, to the recent American Muslim task force on civil rights and elections that is really was about the business of participating in the 2004 election and all of that to me is a very strong uh, statement about the fact that Muslims are here are present, are interested in participating, are not, uh, you know, are the whole spectrum of diversity that you have in the Muslim uh, tradition worldwide. The recently formed uh, Progressive Muslim Union of North America um, has brought lots of sort of younger Muslims together, many of them American-born Muslims, to carve out new territory uh, in American Islam and all of this is just a set of fascinating developments that I think are important for all of us as Americans the one thing I would say about the Abrahamic faiths though is that that's in a way the easiest part of dialogue Mm -hmm. it's maybe um, difficult because it also I mean the Muslims are along with the Jews America's second great religious tradition There are probably about as many Muslims as Jews in the United States today so but that's a you know an easy place to begin and I would say it has its own exclusions and if that's the core then what about the Hindus what about the Buddhists what about the Jains what about the Sikhs all of whom are very um, much involved and you know here as new religious communities I don't think we want to reform a uh, a new core that is judeo christian Muslim, without recognizing that in doing so we still have these outliers who yes. are not being included in our multi religious polity
0: well, your answer to this very very complex question suggests the uh, both the promise of pluralism and the and the perils of pluralism and, and both the challenges of of An inclusive America, and at the same time the uh, the, f- the possibilities that we may create new kinds of solidarities that that yeah. could exclude still others yeah. so it 's it's, it's the ordeal of pluralism and it 's on that note that we must bring this interview to a conclusion. I want to thank you so much for a very provocative and informative conversation on American religion and the challenges of pluralism in our day again thank you so very much
1: thank you Clark it's been great